Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome back to our class on John's Gospel, the Gospel of Signs. Philip, would you mind getting that door, please? I'll get this one over here. <laughs> We're in chapter 19. Everybody get a worksheet? Welcome to everybody who's watching online. Appreciate you being with us this morning. We're coming down to the final chapters. And I I did not stretch this one out on purpose. The text of chapter 19 just kind of lent itself. We've been doing two chapters, but this one definitely works better. Just looking at the one. So, John chapter 19, we'll start off with the first 15 verses. Here we go. John simply says that Pilate took Jesus and blanked him. He he scourged him. It just says that right out. He does not. And these next two words are my input for the, to make the point. You wouldn't necessarily get them. But John does not blank or go into any of the literally gory blank. He does not elaborate. And he doesn't go into the gory details. Now think about that. You're writing about Jesus being scourged. And how horrible was scourging. I've got a note here in a little bit uh, from a site about the scourge itself. But John just says Pilate had him scourged. He doesn't say how long it took, how much blood there was, anything that was said during that, how Jesus behaved. It just says Pilate had him scourged. To me, the brevity of the Bible tells us that God is the one who wrote it, not men. Neither do any of the other blank blanks Gospel writers, they don't elaborate. They don't go into the gory details. They just say Jesus was scourged. In fact, blank does not mention the scourging at all. Which one do you know, do you think? It's Luke. Luke does not even mention the scourging. He records Pilate saying a couple times, trying to make a deal with the Jews. Now, this is Luke we're talking about here, but I want to make this, uh, mention this for the point. Luke says, Pilate repeatedly says, I'll punish him and let him go. He doesn't say what kind of punishment. He just says, I'll punish him and let him go. I find no fault in the man. And Pilate repeatedly tried to reason with the Jews so that he might do that and only that, but To no avail, of course. But Luke doesn't even talk about the scourging. Under Jewish law, one who was beaten could only be struck blank times. Forty times. And you may be familiar that they backed off one so they wouldn't overdo it. Wouldn't miscount. And that's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, the first couple of verses. The blanks, however, had no such limitation. Romans, when they flogged, they hit you as many times as they wanted. 
There's no known limit in Roman law. And we can just read that together. This is from the BibleHistory.com online. The Roman scourge, also called the flagrum or flagellum, was a short whip made of two or more thongs or ropes connected to a handle. The thongs were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, usually zinc or iron, attached at various intervals. I've also read that sometimes it wasn't metal, sometimes it was bone or pieces of wood, but it was designed to injure you. And so the Romans would beat a man with this scourge, and it's recorded in history that some men actually died from being scourged. Pretty violent. Pretty traumatic. All right. After being scourged, Pilate brought Jesus back before the blank, wearing a blank of thorns and a blank blank. He brought him back before the mob. I call him a mob. You can call him a crowd if you want. Wearing a blank of thorns, crown, that's, that's a given for anybody familiar with the text, and a blank blank. Scarlet robe or purple robe. And he did this in order that he might say again that he found no blank in him, no fault, no guilt. He will blank this fact a third time in chapter 19, verse 6. He'll repeat it. Three times John records Pilate saying, I find no fault in this man. Now think about it. This is a Roman. He's a Roman governor. And I doubt he has any love for the Jews. And here's the man that the Jews have brought before him. And you might think he would just say, because we get this idea in history, and I think a lot of it, a lot of history shows us it's pretty much true, that life was cheap. And if Pilate thought he could appease these people by just, because who, who is Jesus to him? He has no idea. Just, just have him killed, make them happy. But he doesn't do that. He talks to Jesus. He interrogates him. He asks him questions. And his analysis was, as John repeats at least three times, I don't find anything that this man's done that deserves death. I'll punish him and let him go. No, we want him crucified. What John is showing us is that Jesus, in fact, truly was rejected by his own people. That's how John starts his gospel. He came to his own and his own received him not. That's the general truth about Jesus and his own people. And that is, in fact, what Isaiah prophesied. And I like to make the point with people who doubt if Isaiah was making it up 700 years before the fact, why would he invent a Messiah coming to save them that his people would reject and put to death because those are the kinds of things that Isaiah says in the 52nd and 53rd chapter. And here we're seeing it come to pass just as Isaiah said it would. <clears throat> All right, there's a question. How did Jesus respond to Pilate when he told Jesus he had the authority to either release him or crucify him? That's right. 
The only reason you can do that is because this authority was given you from heaven. In other words, it was not Rome that put Jesus to death. It wasn't the Jews that put Jesus to death. This was in accordance with God's plan. Now, of course, Rome and, and the Jews did it in the sense that they, they pressed for this to happen, but this was the plan. All along, Jesus had been sent to die for the people. I'll throw this in. I didn't put anything in the, in the worksheet about it. But there are uh, Christian people who say that Jesus intended to establish the kingdom, but when he was put to death, he couldn't do that. And so he said, well, I'll come back later and set up the kingdom. That's wrong. Jesus did come, in fact, to set up the kingdom, and he did set up the kingdom. What did he say to Peter and the other apostles? I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of death, will not prevent it. My death will not. As a matter of fact, it was his death that enabled the building of the church because the church is bought with his blood. This was all part of the plan. It doesn't look like a plan we would come up with because, duh, we're not God. But he is God, and his plan was perfect, and it was perfectly fulfilled. And just as Daniel prophesied, God would set up his kingdom in the days of these kings, and that's exactly what happened. And Daniel said the dream is certain, the interpretation of it, sure. So he was guaranteeing us back in the second chapter of Daniel, this is what's going to happen. And we're seeing it come out here in the 19th chapter of John. My kingdom's not here. Right. If it was, my followers would fight tooth and nail for it. Exactly. But we're not, I'm not worried about this. I'm worried about my kingdom in a greater place. And so and that's the, I wonder, like, when you referenced Isaiah, like, we know the scriptures because we have them all right here together. Right. How well, I imagine some that were devout Jews knew Isaiah's scriptures, but did they have such a recollection to know that 52 and 53, which I know was in a, a thing, but, like, did they know that those prophecies were already there 700 years ago, or did they only have limited information and then they had others that said ooh because even the apostles said this was prophesied like this is the guy because he's doing the things that they said right. so many years but maybe not everybody had that just like we don't all have the same bible knowledge either right so right. understanding where every scripture is and it just makes you think like how many more would have followed him had they had Isaiah 52 and 53 and be like oh well this is these are correlating now right and if you look up Isaiah 53, you'll find that there are people who say that's the forbidden chapter. Jews are not supposed to read Isaiah 53 because you read Isaiah 53. It's like, well, how, how did Isaiah know this hundreds of years prior? And I am, uh, by none of these things am I saying, well, if I'd have been there, that's not my point. We tend to think like that. If I'd have been there, I'd have stood up and I'd have said something. I'd have set everybody straight. No, maybe not. The fact of the matter was all this was there. The prophecies had been given. They could have been read and should have been read and should have been understood. And yet, God provided all those prophecies knowing this is what's going to happen with my son, and that's my point in sending him. Isaiah also said in the 53rd chapter, it pleased God to crush him. 
What an unusual statement that is. But why did it please God? It pleased God to crush his son because he knew that's the only way to save us. And he wanted to save us more than he wanted to keep his son from going through this. Think about that. His desire to do right by us. You and me, what do we deserve? And yet God is not simply willing. He was desirous to put his own son to death in that way so that we might be with him for eternity. He didn't send him to condemn him. He sent him to save us through him. Exactly. So through Jesus and his sacrifice, it's for all. Right. And he came to not to judge the world, but to save us and provide the light and said everybody who who loves God comes to the light that their deeds might be shown for what they are. And that, that's what I'm hoping we're trying to do is come to the light. Uh, I don't want to be one of those people who, who, who comes to the light and then sees and says, uh, well, we're not going to go to that part of the light. We're going to go somewhere else. And here's Pilate. There's so much irony here. This heathen, pagan, idolatrous, whatever Pilate was, He's arguing for the release of Jesus, saying, I don't find any fault in this guy. And Jesus' own people are clamoring for his death. And not just any death, but a crucifixion. John wrote of Pilate that he made blank to release Jesus. Says it in the text, and it's plural. Efforts. He made efforts to release Jesus. But the Jews argued that if he released Jesus, he was no friend of. How twisted is this? The Jews hate the Romans. And yet, now they're trying to push Pilate to be Caesar's friend and using that as leverage to get their Messiah put to death. These things happened on the day of Preparation for the Passover. And at the blank hour, by John's reckoning, sixth hour, which would have been 6 a.m. So this is all taking place early in the day, six, 6 in the morning. Just day of preparation for the Passover. Here's the Passover lamb. Wow. There's just so much, that you, we, we, can't, we can't pull it all in here. All right, next section. John is the only gospel writer who actually tells us that Jesus blank the blank. He's the only one who says Jesus bore the cross. Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of those three tell us that Jesus carried the cross. But John says he did. He bore the cross. Right. Yeah, there it is. This is my verse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that a man named Blank was compelled to bear Jesus' cross also. What was that guy's name? Simon. Simon of Cyrene. He was a Cyrenian. 
And those three writers tell us that Simon was compelled to to bear Jesus' cross. But they do not tell us blank. They don't tell us why he was compelled. They don't say this is why they got Simon. Not a single one of the writers tells us that Jesus blank with the cross fell. That is uh, relegated to legend. It's not in the Gospels that Jesus fell. I believe what happened was somebody assumed, well, if they got Simon to carry it, Jesus must have fallen with it. But what, what other possible reasons could there be for them to compel Simon to carry the cross? Can you think of any? What's that? That's a good one to consider with this. Uh, Jesus had probably not had much sleep. Who knows if he was given anything to eat or what he might have been offered to drink. He's been beaten probably to within uh, an inch of his life, as we would say. And he's carrying the cross. Maybe he was struggling to get it up the hill. And these Roman soldiers are thinking, we need to get this over with. I'm tired of this guy dragging along. Maybe he will. I don't know. Let's get this other guy. This guy hadn't he he can carry it. He's a he's a big hoss. See, I'll throw that in. Now that'll become a legend. Oh, Simon was a big guy. Well, no, it doesn't say that, does it? <laughs> you you start conjecturing about things. Well, why why do you think that? Well, maybe he was a big guy. Yeah, he was a big guy. That's what it was. No, it's not in the text. If it's not in the text, don't don't start thinking that that's the way it was because it's not necessarily so. Maybe Maybe they said, oh, this guy's king of the Jews. We can't have the king carrying his own cross. Get one of these other stinking Jews over here to, to carry this cross. Let's join a few more of his own people. In a, who knows what they did, what their reasoning was. But we know what John says happened. We know what the other writers say happened. And we know what they did not record happening. And none of them say that he fell. It's not the fact that he did or did not fall. It's that... It's such a universal thought that Jesus fell with the cross. It's, it's even in one of our psalms. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. The cross became so heavy he fell beneath the load. I don't, like, I, I don't sing that when we come to that song. Now, I'm not vehemently opposed to singing the song because it's got that verse, but it's teaching something that may well not be true. So that's why I wanted to draw some attention to this so that we would learn to make sure that what we think the scriptures say they actually say all right let's move on the place of crucifixion was called Golgotha meaning blank skull two blanks were crucified with Jesus thieves one on blank blank of him either side John points that out 
sometimes you might think of it. So, well, was Jesus between them? Because that's the picture we always see. Is that an accurate picture? Yes, that's that's what John says. He was between the two. Was his cross any higher? I don't know. Doesn't say that, does it? That's normally what we see, though. Two crosses and then a nice high cross in the middle. Maybe. Maybe not. But isn't that what maybe means? Doesn't maybe mean maybe not? There's a comedian, George Wallace. He made a thing out of that. It was pretty funny. Anyway. The soldiers divided up his clothes, his garments, but gambled for his tunic rather than tear it. This was in fulfillment of David's, and this is a number here, which psalm? The 22nd psalm. The 22nd psalm. Remember the 22nd psalm. You ever want to do a personal devo or a family devo? Just go to the 22nd psalm and read through what David says there. Though there is no blank of such a thing ever happening to David. There's no record David mentioned a lot of things in this 22nd Psalm that all applied to Jesus, and there's no record that any of them ever happened to him. All right, back page. Standing by Jesus' cross were several blank. And the women, there were several women. John tells us of at least, and I'll go ahead and tell you, he tells us of at least three and possibly four. There was Mary, Jesus' blank mother, to distinguish her from the other Marys. There were plenty of other Marys. Mary, Jesus' mother, is included among them. Seeing his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus essentially asks that disciple to blank blank of her, take care of her. Wouldn't he? It's a young age to have that responsibility put on you. Apparently it did you good. I think you turned out all right. Jesus is on the cross. Said, woman, behold thy son. And I, when I was young, I, I read that. And, oh, he's saying, mom, look at me. Look, this, this is, I'm your son. Look at me. No, he wasn't saying, look at me. He's indicating John. John is your son now. Because he said to John, Behold your mother. John, you take care of my mom. That's that's what Jesus was doing. Even in this time of unimaginable agony, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about his mom. 
Now, knowing that everything had been accomplished in order to fulfill blank, John says, in order to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I am thirsty. After being given a drink of blank, blank, sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowed his head. I thought I caught it all, but there's a misprint there. He gave us, he's supposed to be gave up his spirit. Luke records that just before he bowed his head, Jesus cried out with a blank voice. And I know this is Luke, so I shouldn't expect you to know this. A loud voice. He cried out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That is the last thing Jesus said from the cross. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And then he obviously died. But he said it with a loud voice. That this wasn't the dying, whimpering, last breath of, of a man who just barely alive. This was a loud voice. He still had strength. And he did what he said he would do with his life. He said, no man takes it from me. I lay it down. And so he laid it down right here. He offered it up for us. And then he, after six hours on the cross... Surrendered his spirit back to his father. trying to comprehend something that's just too deep and too far, but but there it is. Here it is. Um, intellectually, academically, we can read these things and we can understand many of the facts, but to, to comprehend the, the wholeness of it. For example, it says this is a plan that was put together from the foundation of the world. This wasn't something God came up with after after sin entered the world, and he went and said, hey, Jesus, I got this plan. What about what if we do? No, this, they knew this was going to happen. They had this planned out. So in all of human history, 4,000 years up to the point of the crucifixion, and I know, yes, God exists in eternity, but Jesus also is familiar with time, and Jesus knows this is what's coming. 
all through human history, this is what's coming. Haven't you ever had anything in the future that you knew was going to be really hard and you just kind of dreaded it? My mind always goes back to high school and tests. Oh, man, I got a test in Latin coming up. I don't know that stuff. I don't even want to study. It's like some foreign language to me. It's like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. It is. It's not even a living language. It's a dead language. Nobody speaks it anymore. Why are we even studying this? Well, anyway. Well, that means that in God's plan for the foundation of the world, it's not anything that Jesus, you know, he agreed, he gave up his life. And I think about Noah and God destroying the world. But yet, even though he started all over again, his plan is still in place. I think about Jonah, you know, and and everything he did will allow that, but God's plan is still in place. You know, we can either accept it or we can fight it. Right. And there's a constant process of restoration. There's always a restoration. Jonah was a restoration. Noah and his family, they were a a restoration. The Jews were restored back to, to their land after being in exile for 70 years. God is constantly trying to restore us to the state of perfect harmony and perfection and fellowship we had with him from the beginning and this this is the culminating uh, moment in history we might say when Jesus gives up his life his blood wipes our sin away so it's paid for now and we have the right to become uh, children of God by Jesus blood by our, our faith in him and we can come into his presence and and he is just like Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 In the gospel, the righteousness of God is declared. To me, what that means is, and I think he he identifies what he means in the third chapter. If God had forgiven our sin without paying for it, he would not have been righteous. To forgive sin, he had to pay for it. And so the only way to pay was for somebody who was sinless, and that's Jesus. And so they took care of it for us. We couldn't do it. There's nothing we have to offer. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, that's a question that Jesus asked because there isn't anything to give. All we have to offer God is our faith, and he says, that's enough. I'll count that as righteousness, and I'll do it on the basis of my son's blood. If I didn't offer up him and his life, then I couldn't do this righteously. But because I did, I can righteously forgive your sin. Because all sin requires death. And that's what we're reading about here. All right, last section. Here is blank defined. And if you can see inside my head, you must see inside this head. You can't see inside there, can you? Yeah. What's that? Well, there, you're, we're seeing love defined, but what I'm looking at in this particular case is irony. Irony defined. Let's talk about that. The Jews having blanked Pilate to crucify the Son of God. They, they begged, they demanded, they compelled. I believe the, the best word in my mind is compelled. They compelled Pilate to crucify the Son of God. Remember, they argued, if you, don't, if you let this guy go, you're no friend of Caesar. It's like, well, man, you put me in a corner here, which is what they wanted to do. They compelled Pilate to crucify the Son of God. Now they become concerned about defiling the blank day, Sabbath day. Oh, 
We don't want to defile the Sabbath. They ask that the legs of those crucified be broken. You haven't done enough to these guys already? While they're hanging on the cross, you want to go break their legs? The soldiers break the legs of the blank thieves, but finding Jesus dead, they blanked his side with a spear, pierced his side with a spear. From the wound came blood and water. Ask any bow hunter, that's the shot you want to get. The deer's quartering away from you. You get that arrow in just behind the rib cage and it goes up into the vitals and that's how you make sure that that's going to be a kill shot. And that's what that soldier did. Pushed that spear up into his chest cavity, into the vital organs to make sure that when they take this guy off the cross, he's really going to be dead. That's why when when people argue, oh, he wasn't really dead, they put him in the tomb and the coolness of the tomb uh, helped him revive Right. I won't say what I think about that. But there's no way. (laughs) Beaten almost to death, suspended on a cross with nails for six hours, a spear's pushed into his side, and then if, if all that didn't kill him, the burial process we'll read about would have. From the wound came blood and water. Did we do that one? We did, didn't we? Okay. John here notes the fulfillment of two specific passages. First from Exodus twelve forty six, that no blank of the Passover lamb shall be broken. No bones shall be broken. And think about, put that together in your mind. 1,500 years before this happens to Jesus... God institutes the Passover with them, and he says, now, you're going to eat a lamb. It's going to be a a lamb, a sinless lamb. Not a sinless, but a a perfect lamb. You're going to kill it. You're going to eat it, but don't break any bones. What are you going to do with the blood? I'm going to put that blood on the doorpost of your house. And when I see the blood, I'm going to do what? I'm going to pass over. Nobody in that house is going to die. But don't you break a bone of that lamb. And then we find out that part of the process of crucifixion involves the breaking of bones. If they don't die fast enough, you break bones. What a coincidence. Right. And yet they come to Jesus and they don't need to break his bones because he has already, when he was ready, gave his spirit back to the Lord after six hours on that cross. Where are we here? Secondly, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, regarding them blank on the one whom they pierced. Looking, looking on the one whom they pierced. There's a, when we were in Jerusalem, and there's no way to know for sure either one of these places, one the Catholic Church says is the place of crucifixion, and I I read that and I read the account of Scripture. I say, there's no way that's the place, but whatever. There's another place 
that I think could very well be the place that's in a garden. <laughs> and that's what it says. There was a, a garden adjacent to the place of crucifixion, and in that garden was a new tomb. And there's a place in Jerusalem that perfectly fits that description. And when you go there, it's, it's kind of, they've got a little area. The only way you could really understand what I'm talking about is, is to go there. Even the pictures that I took, because I thought about showing you, the, but the pictures don't do it justice. You sit in this little place adjacent to that garden and the tomb where you can see what's believed to be the place of Golgotha, the skull. But you, you can only get so close because now there's a highway and there's a tunnel going through this hill that's supposed to be the place of the skull, and cars are going through there, so you, you, you can't step out there and you get run over. But it does. Still today, 2,000 years later, the place has an appearance of a skull. There's some little, not like, not quite caves, but there are indentions in the, in the ground that look like they could be the eye sockets. And who knows? It's been 2,000 years. Does God want this place discovered? I don't know, but, but this place looks like it could be the place. But the point is... There's all this evidence. And it was interesting. My dad was over there in the late 50s. He, he was an uh, Air Force pilot, and he flew some dignitaries over there, part of a crew that did that. And my daughter found a picture of him standing by the same tomb we were looking at when we were over there last September. Oh, man, how cool is that? So that may well be the place. We may have stood right there where Jesus' body lay. It pales to insignificance when you realize we're going to stand before him in judgment and he's going to be welcoming, welcoming us home. Wow. Anyway. Uh, secondly, Zechariah 12.10, regarding them looking on the one whom they pierced, John also makes it clear. There's another mistake. Gah. John also makes it clear that he blanked this and records it here so the reader may blank. John makes it clear that he saw it. He witnessed it. I'm writing these things because I saw them and I'm telling you about them so that you might believe. Believe. I call this a study of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Signs. It could just as maybe would have been better to call it the Gospel of Belief because the whole point of the signs are that we believe. Two men, blank of Arimathea, Joseph, and Nicodemus came for Jesus' body. I'm not being critical, but who did not come for the body? The apostles. There's no record of any of the apostles showing up. Let's go get, his, let's go get our master's body down off the cross and do something. They didn't show up. I, again, I'm not being critical. I'm just thankful that these guys did and that John recorded it for us. They prepared it for burial using about a blank pounds, a hundred pounds of blank and blank, myrrh and aloes. We sing a song <clears throat> about Jesus' sacrifice, and it says, aloes had a part. If you ever sing that song, what, what's that mean, aloes had a part? Well, this is what I think the author must have been talking about. A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes, linen wrappings, and spices. A garden was nearby, 
having a blank tomb, a new tomb that had never been used. They laid Jesus' body there. And he wasn't going to need it long. So far, John has made it a point to tell the reader blank times that this was the day of blank. Three times. And I've got it noted there, chapter 19, verse 14, verse 31, and verse 42. Why is that significant? The day of preparation was before the Sabbath. So this was the day of preparation. That's the first day. The Sabbath is the second day. What day is the third day? The first day of the week is the third day. And all the gospel writers, all four gospel writers come down hard on that first day of the week. It's like there's a major change coming. It's not going to be about the Sabbath anymore. It's going to be about the first day. And I believe that's the day John's talking about in Revelation 1 when he calls a day. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I don't know what day he'd be talking about if it wasn't the first day of the week because Jesus never from that point on emphasized the Sabbath. And there's no teaching in the New Testament about keeping the Sabbath. So I think we're talking about the first day of the week being the Lord's day. Anybody got anything as we close? This was kind of a heavy one for good reason. Appreciate y'all being here. Appreciate your kind attention and participation. Lord, love you. You are dismissed. Get ready for worship.